First, a gentle warning. This podcast can be a hard listen at times and includes themes of violence, mental distress and racism. It's something you might need to consider before listening. Early on Sunday, 3rd of May 2015, Police Scotland's control room starts to receive calls. Hello, there's a man with a knife, a black man on Hayfield Road in Kirkcaldy. Police arrive at the scene and within minutes, Sheku Bayo is down on the ground. After being restrained by up to six officers, he stops breathing. Many details of what happened that morning are in dispute. His devastated family are still searching for answers. They want to know what role race played in Sheku's death. They claim he is Scotland's George Floyd. Sheku died here in Scotland and I am fighting, we as a family are fighting for changes to happen in Scotland. No family should suffer the way that we are suffering. Police refute this. Now a public inquiry, launched in May last year, is trying to find out what really happened. Its purpose is to seek to ascertain the truth. And to that purpose, I am fully committed. Welcome to Sheku Bayo, The Inquiry, a podcast series from The Ferret. Episode 3, A Cup of Tea. I'm Karen Goodwin, co-editor and journalist for The Ferret. And I'm Tamiwa Fullerinshaw, a freelance writer, editor and presenter. So far, we've brought you two episodes of Sheku Bayo, The Inquiry, telling you what you need to know about the evidence from hearing one. Last time we looked at the impact that race and unconscious biases can have on the lives of black men who find themselves in police custody. If you've not heard the last two episodes, go back and give them a listen first at theferret.scot or wherever you get your podcasts. So today we're going to look at the decisions taken by police about how to react to Sheku, how that escalated and how much force was ultimately used. And we'll be hearing from experts who spoke at the inquiry of what sort of options might have been open to officers, from those attending Hayfield Road to those in the control room and in Kirkcaldy Police Station listening in on the radio. We'll also look at what the inquiry was told about who was in charge that morning. This time we're going to take a step back and start with something a bit different. This is not a story about the incident on the 3rd of May 2015, but it is a story about policing and about the approach this officer took when faced with someone experiencing mental health crisis. That officer is police expert witness Joanne Caffrey, who gave evidence to the inquiry about use of force. We heard from her last time. Senior counsel Angela Graham KC started by asking her about a situation she herself had faced as a duty sergeant in charge of a custody suite. And I'd I'd been up and down the the cell block throughout the the tour of duty. It was a night shift. And I happened to go back down to do the regular checks and I I noticed from one of the cells was some water coming from under the door. So I tried to tiptoe towards the door and look through the hatch. And I seen the, the, the man who was inside the cell was now naked, stood on the bed and the floor of the cell was wet. So it, it appeared that he had 
blocked the toilet and caused it to overflow, to, to wet. I opened the hatch and I seen that he'd, he'd released the lights from the ceiling and all the electrical wires were hanging down now as well. So those wires were live, water on the floor, he's on the bed. By looking at him, I could instantly see he was in some form of crisis. And so the last thing I wanted to do was um, create a, a, rea a negative reaction from him. It's a dangerous situation. Either the man in the cell or an officer going in to help him could be electrocuted. So she considers her options and thinks back to the training she's had and how to communicate effectively with different people. The theory she was working with goes something like this. She says there are two modes to choose from here, either to inhabit the approach of a nurturing parent or a critical parent. The language she uses might not land well with everyone here. There's an unbalanced power dynamic to impact but we can come back to that. Meanwhile, here's what she tells the inquiry. What so, does a nurturing parent do? So this is for the person who might then be going, you know, what's up? What do you need? Can I help you? And you know, same as if, if your child was crying, you'd be going, you know, what do I need to do to help you? What's going to make you feel happier? So it's, it's that nurturing parent to try and stop the moment of crisis. And so, what's the critical parent? So the critical parents will be things like, stop doing that, get to your room now, and, and just ignoring the, the reason for the crisis. It's, it's more a didactic instruction. Joanne Caffrey says working in the custody suite means moments of crisis are constant. So she finds it most effective to go straight to nurturing mode. It keeps things calm. In this case, that's exactly the approach she takes. I said his name and I said, how can I help you? And at the same time, I touched the silent alarm button on the wall because there was only me in the cell block and there was other detainees as well. Um, I knew then officers would be coming because the silent alarm activates in other parts of the station and also at the area control room. So I knew then that they would also pass over the air to officers that the alarm had activated in the custody unit. I'm, I'm then trying to talk to him but I don't want him to react spontaneous. I don't want him jumping off the bed and, in, in anger. So I'm just trying to say to him, like, just stay there. Let's talk about things. You know, what's a, how can I help you? I'm trying to buy time, trying to keep everything calm. As I'm hearing the officers entering the custody block, I've got my hand up to tell them to, to like, stop. So then I actually said to him while he's standing there, can I make you a cup of tea or coffee? And he asked for a cup of tea. So she goes and makes the tea. On her way, she's consulting with colleagues who have come in and are waiting in the corridor for her signal. She asks them to cut the electricity to his cell for his safety, making sure he can't be electrocuted, and to order a shield team in case she needs extra protection to go in. And when the kettle has boiled, she takes him the cup of tea. She explains what's happening and tells him it's now safe to get off the bed and get his drink. He then got his drink, went back to the bed, sat down. We were talking through the hatch. Then after a little while, I said to him, we could, we could talk further and resolve things, but we needed to get him out of that room now to a dry cell and we needed him to be dressed. I would get the um, doctor to come out and see him, etc. He agreed that he would come out quiet. I told him there were other officers there now, um, but as long as he was calm, we would just move him and, and 
those officers wouldn't get involved and, and thankfully came out, no problem, went into another, another cell. So this is a very different situation to the one officers found themselves facing on Hayfield Road in Kirkcaldy back in 2015. But as the evidence goes on, you can see where Angela Graham, KC, is pulling out similarities. And she's exploring what might have been different if an alternative approach had been taken. In her evidence, Joanne Caffrey talks about the process of walking into the unknown as a police officer. Some might think it's easy to sit in the clinical setting of an inquiry talking about best practice. And she's asked about this, but she insists she's keeping that in mind in her evidence. That her own experience means she knows this stuff through practice, not just policy. She says when she arrives at a scene, she's thinking about the risk. To herself and other officers, to the public and to the suspect. She's buying time while she thinks, trying to calm things down and build up trust and a rapport. And as she adds, a little bit of compassion can then go a long way further on. Her story reminds me of the evidence given by neighbour Neil Morgan, who we heard from in the first episode. He met Sheku on the street early that morning and tried to offer him a tea or a coffee. Here's a reminder. I said, look, come back to the house. Something's upset you. Come back, have a cup of coffee, a cup of tea. Need to settle down. But others have told the inquiry that this nurturing approach would have been completely inappropriate given Sheku's behaviour that morning. Here's PC Alan Payton, the first officer on the scene. You'll remember that PC Payton's initial response on getting out of the police van was to shout to Sheku to get down on the ground. So you didn't think there was time to ask him any questions like, are you OK or anything like that? It's no situation for asking okay. questions like that. The man was out of control. The man was drugged up. The man had a big knife. He was using it. He was attacking cars. And he did firm control from the word go. And then once he's in cuffs, then ask him if he's what a cup of tea or that. But no at that stage. All right. Peyton says he's not arguing against using de-escalation techniques. That's worked for him in the past, he says. But he also tells the inquiry this is different because Sheku doesn't respond to the police sirens and flashing blue lights that morning, or the clear commands PC Payton is shouting. PC Payton says he did consider that Sheku was intoxicated and might be in mental health crisis. But he also claims that doesn't change the fact that this was a man with a knife, and that needed dealt with. So who's right? Martin Graves, a former police officer with 30 years service whose specialisms are in personal safety, conflict management, restraint and officer training, is another police witness that the inquiry has heard from. He's regularly called as a police witness, sometimes on behalf of the Police Federation. He and Joanne Caffrey have different backgrounds and approaches, but they are largely in agreement in many of the issues raised. Let's go back to the very start, when calls start coming in from frightened members of the public. What does Graves say about the initial police response? For a start, he's critical about the decision not to call an armed response vehicle, known as an ARV, which would have supported officers on the ground. In the control room, the inquiry has heard that Inspector Stewart, the only person to have the authority to call for an ARV, was out of the room when the 999 calls first came in. Some witnesses have been asked, did that mean the opportunity for Inspector Stewart to take control was missed? An ARV was requested by the Kirkcaldy team sergeant, but that request was not acted on. Go 
four and one. I want all units to send that. Bear in mind, off for safety. Was on the ARV and a dog as well, please. Police experts told the inquiry a police dog can be a useful way of getting compliance from someone who is armed, with less risk to officers. A dog was indeed requested by control that morning. But as the dog handler in Glenrothes was off duty, an alternative from Edinburgh had to be dispatched. The inquiry heard it would have taken at least 20 minutes to arrive. It's estimated an ARV would have taken a similar amount of time to arrive. That's why Martin Graves says it should have been ordered immediately. Instead, Inspector Stewart asks officers to report back when they arrive at Hayfield Road, at which point he planned to make a decision on whether it was required. Inspector Stewart here in the control room to the set attending. Um, I'm monitoring this obviously from a, uh, an ARV perspective. Um, if you get sightings of the mail, you need to make an initial assessment yourself um, and feedback to me straight away um, and I'll listen out on the channel. He says officers are trained to report back anyway. This message should have been a reminder. But when PC Payton and PC Walker arrive, they don't report back. They're out of the van before Stewart has even finished transmitting the message. Both Joanne Caffrey and Martin Graves agree that the officers should have radioed the area control room when they saw Sheku. They both say officers could have observed him from the van, getting more information while thinking about their next move, or approached in the van and spoken to him with the window rolled down. It would also buy them time while waiting for the police dog and ARV to arrive. Here's Martin Graves on the benefits of that. And in terms of the observation, what would you expect officers in this situation to be feeding back to ACR? Um, as I said, location, um, demeanour, what they're doing, behaviour, uh, and whether they're in possession of the weapon, the alleged weapon. And what would be the benefits of waiting at a close distance to the subject? Uh, there's, a, there's a number of benefits to it. Uh, one could be waiting for sufficient officers to more safely deal with that individual um, depending on the length of time waiting for the, the armed support if it had been deployed the armed support to arrive and make that initial engagement um, but it all just gives you thinking time gives you more time to consider the options and the what ifs Alan Payton goes straight to shouting urgent commands it is the type of communication style witnesses call verbal dominance, the critical parent mode described at the start by Joanne Caffrey. Here's Martin Graves' view on that. I think if, if the decision had been made to um, engage Mr Bio in a, in a, in a, a more communicative way, um, possibly, as I said, trying to talk to him through the window, um, you know, asking how he was, what's going on, what's he doing out on, on a Sunday morning, things like that... Um, they might have gleaned more information in relation to his demeanour. Uh, unfortunately, that wasn't the case. The officers decided on this verbal dominance approach. Um, so I think it's difficult to uh, it's difficult to sort of step back from that. If you think of it as a ladder, once you've decided to climb the ladder, um, it's quite uh, quite difficult to then try and climb back down the ladder once you've came in at a certain level. It's a lot easier to come in at a lower level and then escalate from there. As we explained in episode one, CS spray and Pava spray are used against Sheku within seconds. The police experts disagree about whether or not this can be justified. Joanne Caffrey argues that it's disproportionate according to police procedures. 
but Martin Graves thinks it's justified in the circumstances officers now find themselves in. Both agree that the punch Sheku delivers to PC Short's head constitutes the most serious level of offender behaviour. It could cause potentially fatal injury, according to police manuals. Procedure dictates that while officers should still use the minimum force possible to protect the injured officer and themselves, they can also justify using potential lethal force, if needed to preserve life. They are asked, what if Sheku stamped on the officer? Here's Martin Graves again. If that was the case, um, and, and there were stamps, or, or the, 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 the subject was now stamping on an unprotected officer on the floor, um, it shows a, a level of ongoing um, serious assaultive behaviour. Um, not only are we just have it looking at one attack here, we're looking at a sustained <laughs> ongoing attack. Um, the risk to an unprotected officer on the floor being stamped or kicked is, is, is very serious, internal injuries, etc., head injuries. Um, so we're looking at possibly life-threatening injuries in that situation. So if that was the case uh, and uh, an officer was being stamped on the floor, then I would expect um, a reasonable officer to uh, do anything within their, their capabilities to prevent that from happening or to stop it from, from, from reoccurring. So as we told you in the first episode, there has always been serious controversy about whether the stamp actually happened. At the inquiry, both PC Walker and PC Tomlinson demonstrated the stamp they say they witnessed. Arms raised as they brought a foot down hard. Neighbour Kevin Nelson told the inquiry he didn't think the stamp could have happened. Is it possible that when his arms were raised and you saw him with his arms raised, that he was stamping on the female officer? I don't think it's possible, no. And why do you say that? Because she was down and had moved away from him. And as soon as she was going down, that's when he changed course. Right. And how long did that take for him to change course? W one movement, so a fraction of a, a, fraction of a sec less than a second. A fraction of a second. But he also confirmed he left his window for about 15 seconds and walked to his garden gate. He didn't remember seeing PC Tomlinson strike Sheku with a baton, which according to the officer's own testimony is what happened directly after the stamp. The inquiry also heard from doctors who examined PC Short and made no note of injuries to her back, and a police photographer who took pictures of her face, arms, hands and knees, but not of her back, where she was supposedly stamped on. The photographer confirmed she would have been guided by PC Short in terms of recording all the injuries she self-reported. This hearing included testimony from two experts who examined marks found on the back of PC Short's fluorescent police vest. Paul Ryder was asked if the tread of Sheku's boot matched the marks on the vest. Here's Roddy Dunlop, lawyer for PC Short and PC Walker, asking him about the link. And it could have been a shoe. You can't exclude that. I can't exclude that. In terms of the pattern elements that you were referring to, though, as part of the examination that we undertook, we did consider whether those could be part of the, the shoe. The, the process I described for laying the overlay on, on the mark to try to find things, and the spacing of those elements, uh, although there is a, four regular spaced elements, don't correspond with the pattern elements on the shoe. Lorna Lawson looked at whether the soil sample from the vest matched that of Sheku's boots. She confirmed the soil samples came from the same source, 
but she could not make a definitively conclusive link either. What's interesting is Joanne Caffrey didn't put so much significance on the stamp. She said the punch to the head was of no less significance. What matters here is whether the attack was sustained. Angela Graham KC explored with each witness what police responses in that case could be justified. Here's Martin Graves. And what if the initial strike to the head caused the purse, the subject to stop stamping, but then further strikes to the head were applied? Um, each strike should be assessed uh, for its effectiveness and whether or not it has achieved the, the goal that it was set out to do. Um, so if the first strike did um, stop the attack and possibly distance the individual from the officer to prevent them from re-attacking, um, then further strikes at that time, further strikes um, would be, um, to, the, to the head would be, I think would be difficult to justify. Here's Angela Graham asking PC Tomlinson about his statement in relation to that. So you say, I struck him with my baton once to his head. He stopped stomping on Nicole at that point. I think I hit him again, which was about two or three times in total to the head area. Now, yesterday, when you were giving our, mm. your evidence, you talked about that first strike with the baton. Yeah. And you said it didn't stop him, so I delivered two more baton strikes to that general area. Yeah. I don't know where I connect... if where it connected, but that stopped him, and you talked about that. So yesterday, you seemed to indicate that the first baton strike didn't stop him, and that's why you delivered two more. Yeah. In this statement, you seem to be saying, you struck him, and he then stopped stomping on Nicole, and then you hit him again two or three times in total yeah. to the head. So my, my fear there is it was going to continue... Because just because he'd stopped, he didn't change his body position, he didn't move. And my fear was that he was going to actually, as I kind of described yesterday, reload. If, you know, like, and again, deliver another stomp. Joanne Caffrey was asked about the level of force used from the point at which officers arrived until he was brought to the ground. We told you earlier that was just 75 seconds or less. Under police guidelines, officers must rule out the minimum level of force needed before increasing the force used. This is a principle called preclusion. Here's what she said. Bearing in mind your evidence about the actions of a reasonable officer or reasonable officers and the bearing in mind the minimum force principle and the attempts by reasonable officers to observe preclusion. Do you have any comments about the duration at which those events took place, the period of time over which those events took place? Um, my initial feelings when, when looking at how many uses of force were used in that period of time was that that was a lot of use of force within that period of time. And now he's on the ground. Officers are struggling to control him. But in evidence, some officers are unclear about who was involved in the restraint and what each person was doing. PC Tomlinson tells the inquiry there's much he doesn't remember about the restraint. He blames the passage of time. But he does remember in his statement that at one point his legs are caught up in the leg restraints applied by Alan Smith. He remembers being confused, thinking his leg may have been grabbed by Sheku. Sheku is on his front, prone, he says, 
pressing up with his hands to get police officers off him. It is only when he is in handcuffs and leg restraints that he rolled onto his side. This is what Kevin Nelson, the neighbour, says he witnessed when Shaky was being restrained. Um, I had a clear view sight of what looked like a like a pile up of bodies on the ground. Um, I think I've used, I've likened it to like a collapsed scrum at the rugby. It just seemed to be arms and legs everywhere. As they were struggling, a psychiatric nurse, Christopher Fenton, drives past and sees them. He works in the nearby psychiatric hospital and he cranes his neck to check if it's a patient of his. This is what he tells the inquiry. In your experience of restraint and the training you've had, you've talked about trying to avoid them being on their front. Yep. What about applying weight to the back of the person while they're on their front? Uh, do you have any experience or training of that? We never do that. Why do you say that? Again, it compromises their ability to breathe. Witnesses give the inquiry conflicting information about the amount of weight on top of Sheku. Some report that PC Walker, who's 25 stones, was lying across him. But PC Walker insists three quarters of his body was lying across the pavement and exerted pressure only to Sheku's shoulder. The amount of pressure matters more, according to Martin Graves, than the particular position that a suspect is in. In reality, we need three things to be able to breathe. We need to, an, un, an unobstructed airway, we need to be able to take oxygen in, our chest needs to be able to expand and our diaphragm needs to be able to rise and fall. Um, if any one of those three um, activities are, are, are restricted, then that affects our ability to breathe or affects the ability of the amount of oxygen we can take in. Um, so looking at those, those, sort of, those, those elements, um, any restriction on, a, on an individual's body, i.e. locking their shoulders, placing weight across the abdomen, placing weight across the chest, placing weight across the back, um, can in, impede the breathing mechanisms of the, of, the, of, the, of, the, of the individual. So time is a risk factor. Sheku was struggling for four minutes. But struggling is a risk factor in itself. It means, says Martin Graves, that someone will need far more oxygen. It's not about the fact that they can't breathe. It's a fact that they can't breathe sufficiently to take enough oxygen in for what their requirements are, therefore asphyxiation. There are signs that someone is not getting enough oxygen, though, police experts claim. One is that a person who has been struggling is suddenly still. This is when officers realised Sheku was unconscious. It took a further four minutes to realise he wasn't breathing. But Joanne Caffrey says that breathing does not just stop. It goes from normal to abnormal first. And that is when CPR should commence. That has been explicit in the first aid guidance used by police since 2005, she says. Back in Hayfield Road, CPR starts and Sheku remains handcuffed to the front. Here's Joanne Caffrey's view of that decision. And what, uh, what would a reasonable officer do with the handcuffs? Remove them, because if you've already established that the person is unresponsive, when you're thinking then about the purpose of the, the restraints is to, to prevent the person escaping or assaulting, but if you've done your checks right and concluded they're unresponsive, then there's no necessity to keep the, the physical restraints on anymore because medical attention must be prioritised over, over the restraint process. Officers questioned say the handcuffs did not impede the life-saving attempts 
and that was the priority. Martin Graves also thinks the handcuffs should have been removed. In fact, they will not be taken off until Sheku is in hospital, where he is later pronounced dead. What is not clear is this. Who was in charge that morning? Who was making decisions about tactics? Who was leading the officers? What part did Inspector Stephen Stewart play in the control room? What about temporary Inspector Stephen Kay, who had oversight of Kirkcaldy Police Station? And what about Acting Sergeant Scott Maxwell, who led the team of officers and arrived at the restraint was ongoing? Those have also been questions that the inquiry has been asking, and the answers have been far from consistent. Neither is it clear who is in charge when all 12 officers are told to return to Kirkcaldy Police Station and wait together in the canteen. Many said that no one asked them not to speak to anyone about the incident. And here's what the Scottish Police Federation representative, PC Amanda Given, who was called out to support officers, had to say about that situation. Did you have a sense at that time, when you first arrived, who was in charge of the situation? Yeah, there was, there was nobody in charge of the situation. Details about what happened next, how police dealt with the post-incident management, will be examined in more depth in the next hearing. It starts on Tuesday, 31st of January. So as we bring the summary of this hearing to a close, let us go back to the people at the heart of this inquiry. Sheku's family. When I spoke to them last December, they told me about the difference the support of the public made and their hope that they could rely on it more for this next stage of the journey. It makes a lot of difference um, to us as a family. It gives us the courage. It, it, it makes us know that um, people are really supporting us. You know, when George Floyd died, so many people came out, you know, rallying for him, protesting for him. They lit candles, they were crying for George Floyd. And um, my heart goes out to George Floyd, but I was expecting a whole lot of people to come out, stand in, in Festival Square, sit with me in the courtroom and show support because Sheku died here in Scotland. And I am fighting, we as a family are fighting for changes to happen in Scotland. No family should suffer the way that we are suffering. So I urge people to support us during the next inquiry. We are going to end on Caddy's words. We hope these three podcasts have inspired you to know more. You can watch the inquiry live at shekubayuinquiry.scot or you can attend the hearing in Edinburgh in person. The website also has details of how to reserve a place. And we'll be back with more episodes summarising the next hearing soon. The inquiry is expected to run until 2024. Sign up to our Ferret Underground newsletter at theferret.scot to stay updated. And find all three episodes there too. Presented by me, Karen Goodwin. And me, Tomiwa Follerinshaw. The Ferret is an investigative co-op run by and for its members. We believe good journalism changes things. To make this podcast, we've spent hours listening to all the evidence so we can summarise it for you, our listeners. And we need your support to do more. Join us at theferret.scot forward slash subscribe and get three months free with the code PODCASTOFFER. This podcast was written and produced by Karen Goodwin, researched by Tamiwa Fullerin-Shaw, recording, editing and sound design by Helena Rafai, original music by Alan Bryden. <laughs>